The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Um, I'm very honored today to interview a gentleman who's well-known in the music industry, in the classical music industry, which is one of my favorites of all time, and also has a very compelling personal story, which also speaks to so many of our hearts, and particularly mine. His name is Martin Goldsmith. He is the host and classical music programmer for Symphony Hall on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and previously hosted NPR's Performance Today, from 1989 to 1999. He's also the author of The Inextinguishable Symphony, and he lives in Maryland. And um, his book is Alex's Wake, A Voyage of Betrayal and a Journey of Remembrance. And just to share, on May 13, 1939, the MS St. Louis sailed from Hamburg, loaded with Jewish refugees eager to escape Nazi Germany. However, denied entry into the United States, the ship's passengers returned to Europe, where many were captured and sent to concentration camps. Alexander Goldschmidt and his son Helmut spent three years in six different camps before they were murdered in Auschwitz. And in Alex's wake, Martin Goldsmith, the grandson, details his six-week quest to retrace the journey of his grandfather and his uncle made from St. Louis to Auschwitz. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much. Wow. You know, I mean, even just reading that, you know, I can feel my heart moving. This had to be, this had to be a tough journey of remembrance for you and, and, and a lot of courage to want to go back and relive this. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting looking back on it. Uh, I'm not sure about the courage part, but it, it certainly became something that I, I felt that I really had to do. Uh, my father died at age 95, mm. and about a year thereafter, uh, my brother suddenly passed away, very suddenly. And uh, I was left sort of alone, the, the, as I write, the, the last goldsmith standing. Um, I had written <clears throat> about my mother and father in that previous book you mentioned, The Inextinguishable Symphony, and their experiences playing in an all-Jewish orchestra in Nazi Germany. And uh, as I was grieving for my father and my brother, it suddenly came to me that what I really had to do was to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather Alex and my uncle Helmut and uh, their very sad journey from getting off to St. Louis in France through their next three years, as you mentioned before, they were shipped to their deaths in Auschwitz. And it just became something that I felt I really needed, I had to do. 
How did you initially learn about your grandfather and your uncle? Did your father tell you? Um, well, that's a, a very interesting story in itself, Patricia, in that uh, when I was growing up, my brother and I obviously knew, unlike many of our friends, we couldn't go over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house right. at Thanksgiving or anything like that. We we knew we had no extended family, and my brother once asked my father, why don't we have any grandparents? And uh, my father said very shortly, well, they died in the war. My brother and I mm-hmm. were, you know, 8 and 11 mm-hmm. years old, something like that. Um, so it was obviously something that my family didn't really talk very much about. But eventually, as I grew older, I began asking more questions and, and making more inquiries. And in the course of writing the first book, I found out some details about what happened to my grandfather and my uncle. I knew that they were on this uh, infamous refugee ship, the St. Louis, which was turned away from first Cuba and then the United States and then Canada before mm-hmm. being sent back to Europe. So I, I knew some of the, the sketchy details about what happened to my grandfather and uncle, but it wasn't until I began, uh, really became determined to write this next book that I, I learned more of the details of what happened to them. How do you think your dad, your father, dealt with this pain that you know, came with the knowledge of what happened to his father and his uncle? Well, and it, it, was, it went beyond the pain of what happened to them. Uh, it was actually, I'm sure, a much deeper, a much sharper pain in that uh, during those years when they were in France in a number of camps, um, in 1941, my father and my mother managed to get out of uh, Nazi Germany and, and make it safely to New York City. And uh, my grandfather and uncle, who by that time were in these camps in France, wrote to my father in the New World, saying, in effect, uh, please do everything you can to get us out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my father, I mean, he was a new immigrant. He barely spoke the English language. He was making $14 a week at a very menial job. And so it was obviously quite difficult for him to lend a hand but I'm sure he thought that, uh, well, I failed to save my grandfather. I failed to save my father. I failed to save my, my brother. And so he was dealing not only with the, the knowledge of what had happened to them, but the guilt of knowing that he perhaps could have done more to save them and didn't do it. But could he really have? Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very profound question. Um, I'm sure many of... I'm sure his efforts probably would have come to naught. However, he didn't do everything that he possibly could have. I mean, uh, my, my grandfather wrote to him, do everything in your power to get us out. And that included perhaps going to Washington, D.C. and knocking on some doors yeah. on Capitol Hill. And that's something my father didn't do. And in fact, uh, there was a time when he and my mother got jobs playing in an orchestra in South Carolina, and they took the train from New York City down to Columbia, South Carolina, and obviously passed through Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. on their way south, and then again on their way north. And uh, my father, I guess, could have gotten off the train and spent a couple of hours knocking on doors, because as it turned out, uh, if you were able to get a personal affidavit, uh, that, that would have very possibly moved the immigration process forward. Mm-hmm. Again, there were, there were lots of, of roadblocks in that immigration yes. process, but I'm sure my father, had, you know, to his dying day, thought he could have done more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you say, um, 
you know, apart from researching for your book, why was making the journey through Europe yourself, you know, uh, a few years ago, why was that so important to you personally? Well, Patricia, you, you, you raise a very, very profound question. Um, and I, I write about it in, in the book uh, rather extensively. Um, because of that guilt that I was just talking about that I'm sure my father felt deeply, I'm also equally sure that he sort of, obviously not meaning to, but just the way family life is, he passed that guilt on to my brother and to me. Mm-hmm. It was sort of our emotional inheritance. Yeah. And I realized that after my father and brother had died, I, I was aware of an, a completely irrational and yet very real desire to do what my father had failed to do, which was to save my grandfather and my uncle. And again, as I say, that's totally irrational. They were murdered 10 years before I was born. There was nothing I could have done to avert their deaths. And yet I felt that by traveling in their footsteps uh, throughout Europe in this three-year odyssey of theirs, uh, I would somehow be doing something if not to save them, at least to uh, metaphorically lay flowers on their graves, something that obviously had not happened when they were murdered in Auschwitz. So it it, it became something that that I just felt I I had to do. What do you think, how did this journey change you? What did you learn from it? What's the lesson here, Martin? Wow. Um, well, on, on, on a practical level, I learned just so much about exactly where they were. Uh, mm-hmm. when, I, when I first got into my head the idea to, to write this book, I knew that they had spent time in two camps in southern France, one called Rivesalt near the Pyrenees Mountains, and one called Les Milles, uh, near Aix-en-Provence, in, in the, the southern, the south, the eastern part of France, near Marseille. But I knew that they had arrived in uh, Rivesalt in 1941, and they had arrived back in France on the St. Louis in 1939. So there, were, there was a two-year gap there. So in the course of uh, the research and then in the course of my actual journey throughout France and Germany, I, I learned details of where they were. I, I learned that they landed in Boulogne-sur-Mer on the north coast of France and then were transferred to an agricultural uh, center for the rehabilitation of Jewish refugees in a little village called Martigny-les-Bains in the northeastern France near Nancy. And I learned they had spent some time in the city of Montauban and then in the camp called uh, Agde on the Mediterranean. And so by going to all of those places, I was able to see with my own eyes and breathe with my own lungs uh, the sights that they had seen and and the air that they had breathed. Mm. And I was able to uh, reconstruct to a certain degree uh, how exactly where they were. So on on a practical level, in answer to your question, I was able to find out information. But on a on a on a deeper yeah, level, how did it I, change you? How did it affect you? I mean, when you came back, were you the same or were you different? I was utterly different, uh, Patricia. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I when I when I uh, went to to Auschwitz, I mean, it is Auschwitz and its its um, companion camp Birkenau. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, from my perspective, it's it's the saddest place on earth, and uh, I was able to conduct a, a sort of burial of 
both my uncle and my, my grandfather in Auschwitz and Birkenau, respectively. And I just determined while I was there on this very warm June afternoon that what I needed to do was finally you know, set down the burden of guilt that I'd been carrying for a long time and, and set down this, this, this need to, to save them and, and let them rest in the, in the earth and sky of, of Poland. And I, I determined yeah. to do that. Uh, but then when I, when I returned to this country, I found that a much more difficult task than, than, I, had, than I had thought. And I was, I was beset by a certain depression for several months, thinking that, you know, despite my utterly irrational desire to save them, uh, you know, I, I came face to face with the fact that it was irrational and, and that, the, that the bad guys had won. And the punchline to my family's story was the, the murder of, of so many members of my family. And, uh, but, but, but eventually I was able to um, uh, celebrate the fact that the owners of my grandfather's house, he had done quite well for himself after fighting in the First World War. He owned a women's clothing store in the German city of Oldenburg, and he bought a very beautiful house for himself and his wife and his children. And he was forced to sell the house by the Nazis when the Nazis came to power for far less than the house was worth. But um, the family that now owns the house, uh, they bought it about 10 years ago without having any idea of who had owned it previously. They decided to uh, erect a plaque on the side of the house saying that, you know, the Jewish businessman Alex Goldschmidt lived here before being uh, deprived of the house and before being uh, sent to Auschwitz. Um, so the, yeah. the the establishment of that plaque was, was a, a, a turning Amazing. point for me. Yeah. Well, and it's real. You know, I mean, it's really so real for you. It's very visceral. Right. Very visceral. You know, tell us about now how your father, because this is your father's father and uncle, how he was born then. How did that happen? And how did he get to this country? Uh, that story I'd like to know. Well, my father um, and my mother were both musicians in this organization called the Jüdische Kulturbund, the Jewish Culture Association. That was really the, the subject of my first book, The Inextinguishable Symphony. Uh, the Nazis allowed this organization to exist between, nine, between 1933 and 1941 as essentially a propaganda tool. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, mm-hmm. you know, the master of propaganda, was able to appoint to the Kulturbund. I think, didn't they have a movie about this? There was a movie that showed this. No, there was. you're probably thinking of Playing for Time, which Maybe. was, which was uh, about uh, an, an orchestra that, uh, uh, that was established in Auschwitz. But no, there's been no movie about the, about, uh, about the Kulturbund. I think there should be mm. one. But mm. um, no, the, 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 as I say, Joseph Goebbels was able to point to the Kulturbund and say, in effect, uh, you know, look, uh, the Jews look have their own them, yeah. orchestra, they have their own opera company, yeah. uh, we're not treating them so badly. So because my parents were in the Kulturbund, they were able to make a, enough of a living, and eventually they were able to get uh, uh, visas and, and sponsorship in this country and to come over here in 1941. I see. So, so they came over and your grandparents stayed? Right. Mm. Yeah, the plan was, uh, see, my, my, my grandfather, Alex, was arrested on Kristallnacht in November, oh, in November the very, of 19... beginning, the very beginning of the Holocaust, yes. Right, in, in November of 1938, yeah. my, my, my grandfather was arrested, sent to the concentration camp, mm. Sachsenhausen. 
He stayed there for about three weeks, and he was then released with the understanding that he had six months to leave the country or else he would face further arrest. So in those next six months, my grandfather made uh, arrangements to come to the New World. Uh, He booked passage on a refugee ship. He brought along his younger son, my father's younger brother, and the plan was that these uh, two Goldschmidt men would... um, you know, essentially plant the flag in the New World and then send for the rest of the family. But it was their their ill luck to book passage on this ship called the St. Louis. It went to it, Cuba. Right. It was, it was bound for Cuba. But when it arrived in Havana Harbor, the more than 900 refugees on board the St. Louis found out that power plays in the Cuban government made it impossible for more than just a handful of the refugees to disembark in Cuba. Uh-huh. They were then, uh, they then, the boat then sailed north to the coast of Florida, but they were turned away from Miami, turned away from other ports in the United States, also turned away from Canada. So the ship had to sail back to Europe, and a deal was brokered whereby the refugees on board the St. Louis could disembark in either England, France, Belgium, or Holland. So my grandfather, Alex, and my uncle, Helmut, disembarked in France. I'm sure they were quite relieved not to be back in Germany. But uh, then just about a month or so after they arrived in France, the Second World War began, and they metamorphosed in the eyes of their French captors from displaced persons to enemy aliens. And that began their three-month, their three-year odyssey through France. Amazing. And, And then, as you said, and then they ended up having to go back, right? And they went into the French camps. And then they... Then they ended up in Auschwitz. Correct. Yeah, they were. They were. Mm. They, mm. You know. You know what's amazing to me about this story as I'm listening carefully is that you know here they were in Havana. What if they had been the twelve people that got off the boat? You know, that's what's so strange about life. I mean, they could have been one of the twelve, and because they weren't, look what happened. It, mm-hmm. It's just so amazing. It's it's like a flip of a coin, Martin. Right. Well, I mean, the, 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 the lucky ones who, who disembarked uh, uh, were, for the most part, uh, people from Spain who had direct oh, connections to, to Cuba. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't totally random. Uh, so, okay. But, but once, once uh, the, the ship sailed away from Havana Harbor, there were still 907 people on board. Mm. And, uh, yes, uh, many people have asked the question, why didn't President Roosevelt allow yes. St. Louis to land in Miami? And, you know, the, the, it, it is a somewhat complicated answer. I mean, there, the, the country was uh, ruled by the 1924 immigration law, which set a certain quota for people from Germany and Austria. And the idea at the time was, well, if we let in these 900 uh, German refugees, well, 900 people who had uh, attempted to come to this country uh, legally and had filled out all the proper papers and so on, they'd be pushed to the back of the line, and we don't want to do that. And we, we can't make an exception for this ship when there's so many other people trying to come to this country. But, of course, in retrospect, I think, well, you know, what, what would have been the big deal to let in 907 more people? Yeah. Um, and how many lives would that have, have put together? If you take 900 and you multiply it times all of, all of, these, all of these years... Uh, you know, it, it would have been thousands of people that would have been saved. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Um, tell us about your bar mitzvah at 55. How interesting. Why did you choose to be bar mitzvah at that age? Well, it, it was, again, an attempt to reach back uh, across the generations to 
touch my my grandfather. Um, my, we grew up. My 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 brother and I grew up in a very non-observant household. Uh, my parents would go to something called the Ethical Society in uh, St. Louis. Uh, where you know they would attend very earnest uh, lectures about disarmament and and integration and and so on, but uh, we were not my brother and I were not at all brought up Jewish. Um, my father uh, essentially tried to um, negate the fact that he was a Jew. I mean, he would refer to himself as a so-called Jew, despite the fact that both of his parents were Jewish, and mm. he had played in this all-Jewish orchestra in 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 Germany. Now you were um, born in this country, correct? Yes, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, as I say, I, I, I didn't, did not grow up Jewish, although I had a number of Jewish friends in high school and college. But then in, in my mid-50s, I uh, started uh, going to this uh, synagogue here in, in uh, suburban Washington, D.C., uh, uh, Temple Sinai. And um, my, my grandfather, Alex, certainly self-identified as a Jew. In one of the letters he wrote to his father, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in one of the letters he wrote to my father, his son, he mentioned that it was uh, the day of, of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and he was, mm-hmm. you know, re- using his blanket as a desk to write to my father from uh, from this camp, Les Mille, in, in France. And so I, he obviously ident- self-identified as a Jew, so I thought, well, I, I really would like to explore uh, my Jewish heritage. So yeah, at, at, at age uh, 54, I began this 18-month a series of of of, uh, of study that that culminated in my becoming a bar mitzvah boy at at age fifty five. Mm-hmm. What's the message of your book? What is it you want? What's the legacy here? What it, if listeners said, "What can I learn from this?" What's the overall message? Well, I I certainly know that um, I am part of a generation that that's been called the second generation, uh, children of Holocaust survivors, and I know that it's an, it's a generation that's been identified as such by writers such as Helen Epstein and 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 others, and I know that. Um, those of us of a certain age and, and from a certain part of, of history have wrestled with these feelings of, of guilt and shame. And uh, I think that um, uh, this book, Alex's Wake, is, is uh, a demonstration of how, on the one hand, I, I have been swimming. I had been swimming in Alex's Wake for most of my life, and it was a very turbulent wake of, of guilt and, and shame, and the, the rhetorical question, how can I ever really be truly happy? How can I deserve happiness when my grandfather and uncle were murdered in Auschwitz? And by the end of the book, um, the, the wake takes on a different connotation, that of the Irish celebration after the, the, the passing of, of a beloved family member. And in Oldenburg, after the plaque is affixed to my grandfather's house, there is a gathering which I, at the time, think of as Alex's wake, a celebration of his life. And um, I, I, I guess if you, if you want to call it a message, the, the message of the book is that it is possible for uh, us uh, 2G uh, people, uh, those of us of this second generation, to get through these these feelings of, of guilt and shame to the point yes. where we can celebrate the lives of those we have lost. Yeah, it's beautiful, Martin. I want to I want to bring this. Actually, I want to kind of tie this or make a thread 
to what you do now, which is that you are the programmer for Symphony Hall on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. And you know, a lot of the composers who I listen to all the time, Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and all of my favorites and Handel, and I mean, they are of, of that culture. Is there any tie here in your love for classical music? Is there any tie, do you think, with your heritage and your history? Well, there certainly is with my immediate uh, heritage, which is to say my father and mother. I mean, my, my parents were both musicians. Uh, my mother uh, played in the St. Louis Symphony for 21 years and in the Great mm. Cleveland Orchestra for 14 wow. years. And I, as I wrote in the first book, The Inextinguishable Symphony, uh, I, I learned from my parents that uh, music is not only something that's you know, very, very beautiful and life-affirming, it is something worth risking your life for, which is what my parents did when they would sneak through uh, the streets of, of Berlin uh, after a curfew. I mean, Jews had to be off the street by 9 p.m., mm. um, and yet they would often take their lives into their hands by sneaking through the streets to play chamber music mm. with their friends. So I learned that, that music really can be something worth risking your life for. Well, it also saved their lives. Absolutely. If they weren't musicians, they, they wouldn't have lived. Exactly correct. Yeah, that's so really and, and it's also part of my heritage, you know, as as a German, uh, that you know Brahms and Schumann and and Bach uh, uh, and Beethoven, these were great German musicians, and it yes. also it, it it sheds light on one of the great paradoxes of uh, of life. I mean, what some of our Eastern friends would 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 point to the the duality of life that Germany, which gave us. Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Schumann also gave us the Holocaust, and it reminds yes. us that uh, yeah. that the human animal is uh, is a very um, interesting interesting animal. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I have to say, my favorite composer of all time is Mozart. And when you had the Mozart Day recently, <laughs> I couldn't be in the car that day, and I was so upset. Oh dear! The next day, there was right there was no more Mozart on uh. all day. And, and it was so interesting to me, and, and I, I'm referring to this in part of healing, because there was a gentleman who's now passed, his name is Don Campbell, and he wrote a book called The Mozart Effect, which was about how that type of music really can heal you. The way that the decibels are, are written, the way that the rhythm comes, has really healed a lot of people. And I think that's all part of healing. So I want to know if you'd say a couple of words about that. Well, uh, the Mozart effect, quote-unquote, has been debated. Um, I, I, I certainly love Mozart as well. Uh, I love Bach and, and Brahms, and I think that Me music too. is healing. And Handel. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Handel. I thought music is healing. But uh, you know, I, I also love the Beatles, and I love Bob Dylan, and I love Judy Collins, and I love uh, Pete mm. Seeger. And that music is healing as well. Um, I mean, so many things can heal us, uh, so many things that, that come out of the... Um, productive uh, part of, of, of the human spirit rather than the destructive part. So uh, I, I certainly believe in the, in the restorative power of music and art, uh, but it, it's not just Mozart and Brahms. It's, it's, uh, it's as I say, Bob Dylan and, and Pete Seeger, yes. and it's also just taking a walk on a sunny day, you know, assuming we ever do get warm sunny days again in the midst of this uh, long winter. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, as, as springtime blooms, I think it's a reminder to all of us of, of the regenerative spirit that lies within all of us. Mm, how beautifully stated, Martin. And let's tell people about the book again. It's Alex's Wake, A Voyage of Betrayal and a Journey of Remembrance. 
And this will be out on? The official publication date is April the 8th. Okay, and this is this will be aired shortly before that, and people can find this book online. Yes, yeah. certainly uh, you can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, or certainly at your local bookstore. And there's well. also a website, which yes, is Alex'sWakeBook.com. Right, right. No, no apostrophe. It's just Alex'sWakeBook.com. That's correct. All right, and again, the book is Alex's Wake, A Voyage of Betrayal and a Journey of Remembrance. And it's, um, what would you call it, a memoir? Would you call it a memoir? A memoir, and it's also, but it's also a history of that, of that time. I mean, if, if you uh, are interested in learning about uh, how Vichy France uh, came to be and how these French camps were established, many of them not at the behest of the Nazis, but uh, based on the French desire and the, the Vichy government's desire to also purge their country of what they called undesirables, uh, largely Jews. So it's mm-hmm. both a history book and a, and, and a memoir. It is, it's, a, it's a tale of two journeys. It's a tale of, of what happened to my grandfather and uncle 70 years ago and what happened to my wife and me when we followed in their footsteps three mm-hmm. years ago. So it's, it's a tale of two journeys taken seven decades apart. How beautiful. And stay on the line for a minute, Martin, if you would. Sure. My guest has been Martin Goldsmith. His book is Alex's Wake, A Voyage of Betrayal and a Journey of Remembrance. And Martin Goldsmith is the host and classical music programmer for Symphony Hall on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and previously hosted NPR's Performance Today from 1989 to 1999. He's also the author of The Inextinguishable Symphony. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful to interview you. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you, Patricia, so much. All right. All right. All right, folks, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin, right here on Voice America, America's Voice for Patricia Raskin Positive Living. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.